Welcome to The Scientific Method. We are Pacific Northwest University of Health Sciences foray into the world of intellectually entertaining dialogue. From healthcare to pop culture, controversial conversations to advancements in scientific technology and more, we provide expert insight on science and society. We are an exercise in overcoming the noise and discovering the truth. As someone living in the United States in 2018, it would seem reasonable to expect that my life expectancy would increase over the course of my life. After all, a longer life seems like an obvious benefit of countless advancements in science and technology and all sorts of fields. However, according to data published recently by the U.S. Centers for Disease Control, overall life expectancy in America fell fractionally in 2017, from 78.7 to 78.6 years, marking the first time in half a century that there have been two consecutive years of declining expectancy. Underlying that drop, according to these studies, was a, a bad year for influenza and a slight increase in the toll that Alzheimer's is having, but more significantly was an increase in what some people are referring to as deaths of despair, suicides, and drug overdoses. Drug overdose deaths surpassed 72,000 in 2017, according to provisional estimates recently released by the CDC, representing an increase of more than 6,000 deaths, or 9.5% over the estimate of the previous 12-month period. Those staggering sums work out to about 200 overdose deaths every single day, or one every eight minutes. At the same time, the suicide death rate last year was the highest it's been in at least 50 years, according to the U.S. government records. There were more than 47,000 suicides last year alone, up from a little over 45,000 the year before, with suicide rates nearly twice as high in rural counties than in urban ones. On the same note, the rate of drug overdose deaths in rural areas has surpassed the rates in urban areas. To this day, when many people think about opioid addiction, their minds conjure up images of big cities like New York or Baltimore. For me, opiate addiction comes along with an image of my hometown of Fall River, Massachusetts, uh, a long-forgotten former textile mecca that's now dotted with abandoned mills and high unemployment rates. Today, however, that opioid epidemic is not synonymous with those gritty urban landscapes that we usually picture in our heads, and instead, the heart of the epidemic could accurately be pinned to the heart of rural America. In other words, deaths of despair are decimating small towns across our nation. To better understand the problem, I sat down with an expert on opioid pharmacology, pain, and addiction, the provost and chief academic officer at Pacific Northwest University, Dr. Edward Bilski. So I wanted to sit down with you today because we um, recently read a report that for the second year in a row, life expectancy in the United States has declined. And I think that anybody with a reasonable expectation discussing that topic would think that over the years, life expectancy would go up with advancements in medicine and technology and everything. And the fact that it's gone down twice in a row is a bit concerning. And then when you see that it hasn't done that since World War One, and since there was a big flu epidemic and a lot more issues than we seem to be facing now, it really makes you wonder what's going on. And what they're crediting that life expectancy decline to 
is drug overdoses and suicides. And both of those rates seem to be skyrocketing across the country. So because those seem to have a, a correlation, at least in a general sense, um, I wanted to sit down with you today to, to have this conversation about what's going on and and kind of what can be done to uh, to stop this this trend that seems to only be getting worse. So I'm joined today by our provost here at Pacific Northwest University, Dr. Edward Bilski. Uh, so Dr. Bilski, could you give a bit on your background as far as opioid addiction and pharmacology and how you kind of relate to the subject? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Paul, for having me. And I really appreciate the chance to talk about this important issue. Uh, so my background is an opioid pharmacologist, scientist, uh, medical educator, and more recently, I've become an advocate both on the chronic pain side and also in substance use disorders. So something that I, I have some expertise in and I'm very passionate about, because as you said, this is impacting a uh, or disproportionate amount of uh, young people, uh, though it doesn't really um, you know, really segregate against uh, ages. It can affect uh, very young and very old as well, but uh, really impacting um, late adolescence, early adulthood uh, disproportionately. Yeah. So last year alone in 2017, there were over 72,000 deaths that they credit to drug overdoses. And the year before it was around 68,000, which it seems to be growing. And now with synthetic opioids and fentanyl, we just did a news story recently on fentanyl and uh, the growing trend with that, it seems to to only be getting worse. Um, so again, I just wanted to sit with you to, to figure out not only what's going on with these specific opioids and the risks that they pose, but also why people are turning more and more towards substances and, and some of the sadder cases, suicide. And again, I feel like there's a correlation between the hopelessness that many of those people are probably feeling that are, they're leading them to those pieces. So First, we'll talk about the opioids because that's really your uh, your expertise. Um, so opioids in general, all you hear are horror stories, but you still have so many people who use them constantly. And even with fentanyl being worked into heroin and um, hearing all these stories about the overdose rates skyrocketing and people not knowing what they're taking, there's still who knows how many people out there taking that chance. And I, it's just mind blowing to me that there's still that willingness to participate in this. And there must be something that's worth it for them to be risking their life, taking something that they don't even know what the result is going to be. So sure. what is it that is turning a lot of people towards these substances? Well, I would start by saying like, exactly. Uh, it defies rationality when we get into substance use disorders and particularly the extremes of when it's you know, a full-blown addiction. Um, it's compulsive uh, by its nature. And uh, you know, the, these drugs of abuse, which includes not only the opioids, but the amphetamines, uh, alcohol, nicotine, uh, can engender these compulsive type behaviors. Uh, they tap into the limbic system of the brain, uh, the, the basically the natural reward uh, systems uh, that are in place for very good reasons, evolutionary. They, they play a lot of important roles in making sure the um, species survives and thrives, uh, but they can become hijacked. And you know, this has been going on for thousands of years. People figured out that there were certain chemicals in plants uh, that would stimulate these endogenous receptors, and they would produce uh, intense feelings of satisfaction, uh, euphoria, uh, relief of anxiety. And, you know, when taken to uh, something that's maybe tenfold higher than a normal natural reward, like a, a good meal or 
you know, having a sexual encounter with your partner or you know, even just simply um, coming home to a, a home and a family. Right? Those are the natural rewards that are helpful. Uh, these were significantly stronger. Now, what's occurred over the last you know, 100 or so years is that uh, both chemists have been able to isolate uh, the pure products in these plants and modify them, and they can accentuate the potency and efficacy that these agents uh, stimulate the, uh, the brain receptors by. Uh, we are now taking them instead of just simply orally, we can smoke them, we can uh, inject them, and so we're getting a large amount of the drug, pure drug, and the modified drugs into the bloodstream very, very quickly, efficiently. And then it gets into the brain that much faster and, and has an even stronger uh, amplification. So now we're talking you know, maybe a thousand-fold uh, greater uh, effect on the, on the reward systems. And the other part to this is there's many different risk factors that put people at, at risk for... Um, the effects of these drugs. Um, someone who's highly anxious, for example, may particularly like the effects of alcohol or a drug uh, like uh, Valium, uh, benzodiazepine, uh, because it's, it relieves the anxiety, right? Versus a, a person that doesn't have a lot of anxiety uh, may find it modestly you know, stimulating or modestly relaxing, but not nearly as intense as that person who's anxious. So, you know, it's, it's going to depend on the person, their genetics, their their environment. Um, many things also contribute through the lifetime of the individual that puts them at increased risks. Now, let's skip towards the last uh, maybe 10, 20 years where we, we definitely had an issue with chronic pain. Uh, a lot of people suffer uh, from chronic pain. And uh, one way, one approach is to use uh, pharmaceuticals, including the opioid class, to manage pain. Uh, but we've known for decades, if not a, over a century, that uh, with prescribing opioids, uh, there's a lot of responsibility that has to take place on the part of the practitioner, the physician, the prescriber, as well as the healthcare system and the individual. Uh, but sometimes we don't always follow our best practices uh, that, again, have been in place for, for decades, if not a century. So we started to overprescribe them and also had the perception that they were safe because the physician was uh, giving these to me for my acute pain, and I continued to take them, and they continued to provide them to me. At some point, maybe they stopped uh, providing them, and I had to find alternative sources. Um, but literally, at that point, I may have been hooked. I liked the effects. I would go through some kind of withdrawal when um, you know, I, I stopped taking them, so that further reinforced the need to take them. And maybe there was other things that were going on in my life that were contributing comorbidities. Maybe I was anxious. Maybe I was depressed. Maybe I was lonely. And now I'm looking at maybe illicit drugs. I'm starting to buy. Uh, the prescription drugs have uh, kind of become harder to come by. Uh, the prices have gone up quite a bit. I turned to heroin, something I would never have turned to first off. I just There was a stigma there. I just wouldn't do it. But now that barrier has kind of been reduced. I've got friends who are dealers or friends that know dealers. The cost is relatively low. The heroin's fairly pure. And we saw, you know, from the 1970s on, episodes where a high batch, a high purity batch of heroin would come in, and there'd be a rash of some overdose deaths, maybe five to 10 in a you know, large city. Word would get out, that's really potent heroin, people would adjust. More recently, 
the synthetics, fentanyl, which is an approved drug, mm -hmm. uh, in part to manage uh, post-operative pain and chronic pain, uh, it's very easy to manufacture, cheap to manufacture, and very easy to transport across uh, uh, country lines and state lines. So uh, dealers and you know, the distribution networks saw an opportunity. They're, they're business people. And so they started distributing this and adulterating what was a pill or a batch of heroin with an incredibly potent you know, fentanyl or one of its analogs, which is even more potent. That's very unpredictable. And the unpredictability is, you know, if you're off by just a couple fold, you're, instead of just getting high, you're dead. You're unconscious, you stop breathing, and you're dead. And it's very difficult, even with Narcan, to revive some of these overdose deaths because there's a such, or to revive the overdose itself, um, because it's just so hard to bump those, um, the drug off the receptor with the Narcan. So this is where you know, we're at right now, that uh, there's a lot of uh, fentanyl and fentanyl analogs that are being distributed. Uh, people don't know what they're getting, and they're getting themselves in trouble. Um, I think you mentioned suicide too. Would you like mm -hmm. me to? So uh, one of the things that we really can't answer, but it's on a lot of people's minds, is that some of these opiate overdose uh, deaths are, are probably intentional suicides too. Mm. And uh, you know that that's unfortunate as well that someone you know is so desperate that um, they want to end their own life. And uh, you know the opioids are particularly alluring because it's a it's a peaceful death and that you lose consciousness with the euphoria, and you you slowly succumb to the you know, the respiratory depressing effects of the drug. But you know you can't come back from that. You know once that uh, drug is taken and uh, its effects have hit you. So um, we should be asking broader questions of why are so many people drawn to the, this class of drugs. Mm -hmm. Touching on the suicides to provide a number for that too, um, along with the 72,000 deaths that were accredited to overdoses, there were more than 47,000 suicides last year. Um, and that was up from 45,000 the year before, which again are just such shocking numbers. And uh, it's we'll get more into the conversation as we develop, but just the idea that there's that many people who are putting their lives at risk, whether they're taking a drug or intentionally committing suicide, is it's a shocking thing to hear. And it's it's incredible to see that the the life expectancy is actually taking a hit because there's that many people who are turning to these these systems that are devastating not only them, but their families, their communities, the people around them. There's, you know, there's that big ripple effect of everything that happens from one of these choices and it's it's just shocking. So before I got too far into the opioids, I wanted to talk to you about um, in listening to your podcast that you did with one of our students, Logan Noon, um, who runs his own podcast, you talked about the body naturally producing uh, opiates. So what's the function of that? What does it do for the body and what are, what are the benefits of it? Yeah, so I, t I tell people that uh, first, all vertebrates have opioid systems in, in their nervous systems, which is pretty incredible if you think that that's you know, hundred million plus years of evolution. Salamanders and uh, you know rats and humans all have essentially the same opioid system. Uh, it's a fairly complex system. It's it's diffuse throughout the nervous system. Though there's areas of the nervous system, particularly the brain, that have high concentrations. Uh, but like I said, they're they're widely distributed. Uh, the limbic system, which you know, is kind of thought of as the emotional uh, network of, of neurons that 
uh, both regulates our you know, happiness and joyful events and also you know, sad or depressing events, uh, it's very important for natural survival. When we um, you know, think about um, more broadly what the opioids are doing, they certainly regulate pain. Um, we want to be aware of things that uh, injure our tissues. Um, you know, if we step on a nail or if we stub our toe or twist an ankle, there's a very good reason why we need to be aware of that thing that's you know, hurting us. We want to avoid it, you know, get away from that situation quickly. And during the healing process, we want to take extra special care to make sure that we're not re-aggravating that injury. All goes well, the injury heals on its own, and the pain goes away. Too much pain is also detrimental too. So if you're in a situation where you're being attacked by, say, a wild animal, uh, you don't want to just fall down and uh, you know, basically let the animal you know, kill you and eat you. So uh, there's times, and particularly uh, firsthand accounts, and soldiers in battle or big game hunters who were attacked by a lion, mm -hmm. they almost became detached from their body. The pain that should have been there was somehow detached from their experience. Um, the this, this sensation, it's almost like an out-of-body type of experience. So under extreme stressors, the nervous system is able to temporarily suppress uh, the pain and also have some other strategies with the, uh, the adrenergic system, our fight or flight type response, sympathetic nervous system, to help us escape that terrifying situation, that life or death situation. And is that sort of like an adrenaline drive uh, related thing? I yeah, I relate uh, to that. I before I came here um, working as a, a journalist, I had written a story about um, a kid from Rhode Island who was attacked by a shark in Hawaii, and uh, the shark is a tiger shark, and it took off his leg, and he was out on the water for an extended period of time. And talking to him, he said he didn't really feel the pain of it until he was in the ambulance and going to the hospital, and. They don't understand how he survived as long as he was out in the water. And he says that he thinks that it was just his body naturally producing something that was keeping him alive because he needed to. And I imagine that that's sort of the, a, a similar function where there's there's a real need for the chemical and our body produces it. But then when it's not producing it enough in, in the setting where you have some sort of a catastrophic injury and you need to be prescribed pills, that's this the same similar role that they fill. Exactly. So I'll just comment on the first part is that um, there's probably two different things going on in, in, in the body or the nervous system at that time. Uh, certainly the opioids are in place, suppressing the pain, and the adrenergic sympathetic system was trying to deal with basically shock, the blood loss, the uh, you know the things that were damaged. Uh, they were rerouting and constricting certain blood vessels, making sure the heart and the brain were sustained as, as much as possible. And luckily he was able to get help, medical help. Pain then started to rush in when he was in a, a more safe situation. So pain is definitely something that the opioids play an important role. I think very interestingly, um, uh, the opioids also play a role with uh, bonding, social bonding. Uh, it becomes, starts at childbirth with uh, breastfeeding in the milk. There's thought to be some endogenous opioids in the breast milk. Uh, the infant that's suckling is receiving these opioids. They don't have a well-developed blood-brain barrier. It's helping make connections between the mother and the infant. Uh, the mother's also releasing oxytocin. Um, I, I kind of characterize the relationship of having uh, you know children, particularly infants, they're parasites, and uh, for uh, you know up to maybe 20, 25 years, they're going to be uh, consuming more resources uh, than than contributing. Mm -hmm. now, obviously, we better love that 
that parasite. <laughs> if we're going to take care of it, nurture it um, through adulthood, and then they can take care of us you know, as we get older. Um, so it, it's a symbiotic relationship. and uh, But it has to be a very powerful, intense type of bonding between the mother and the infant, the father's role, definitely with uh, humans. Uh, but then also very importantly, we you know evolved for you know millions of years um, into human beings with small communities of, of humans or human-like uh, uh, creatures that would rely upon this small band, this tribe, to for its very essence of survival, right? We were hunters and gatherers, constantly in motion, meaning we had to suppress pain at many times. Those aches and pains could get in the way of us finding the next site that had lots of nuts or you know, some other food supply. Mm -hmm. And we we're in constant motion, but we were relying upon each other. There was a trust in that unit. Uh, and it was a small unit. It was maybe you know, 20, 30 uh, members of, of, the, of the group. Uh, now that's changed relatively rapidly on, a, on an evolutionary time scale. Um, and you think about some of the changes occurring right now in our society that, you know, I, when I went to college, we were just starting to get personal computers. When I was in grad school, the internet was starting to, to come online and emails. And then, you know, and a lot, my kids were born at a time when there was still no smartphones and now they have smartphones. Anybody going forward, think about the massive amounts of uh, technology and connectivity that has confronted us within a decade or less. Um, that's overwhelming, I think, to our nervous systems. And so we're, we're trying to deal with a nervous system that evolved over hundreds of millions of years and deal with some changes now that are occurring at such a fast pace that are directly impacting our nervous systems. We may have some maladaptions right now that, that contribute to mental health issues. Mm -hmm. The other thing you brought up earlier about suicide and, and the opioids and pretty much anything to do with our brains and making us individuals and and whatnot, uh, we're very uncomfortable talking about that as a society. Mm. And that hampers people getting care that they might need. Right? And even if, if I'm feeling a certain way and I'm not able to communicate that because of the stigma to a fellow human being or others that might be observing some of these things that are occurring in my mind and, and manifesting as behavior, they're not comfortable talking to me about it. Hey, is everything okay? And we also typically don't know where to get help either. Even if we do confront it and say there's something wrong here, are we going to go to the physician? Is the physician going to know where to um, coordinate care? Right? Where's a counselor uh, important, a social worker, a psychiatrist? When is medication appropriate versus other strategies? And so this is, all of this is making some of the normal trials and tribulations of going through adolescence or being an adult that much more challenging. Mm -hmm. One number that popped out to me on the suicides as I was reading some of the statistics, um, a few articles came up that Montana leads the nation in suicide rate and it's nearly double the national average. And when you think about Montana, you think about big sky country and beautiful scenery, and you would never correlate that and connect it to a high rate of suicide. But they credit a lot of that, not only to the lack of access to healthcare because it's so widespread, but also to 
many people in Montana sort of living by those standards that you're talking about. People in Montana are tough. And you know, like if you go to Butte, Montana, there's bumper stickers, there's Butte tough. And they don't want to ask for help from other people. They don't want to admit that there's something that they're struggling with. And when you don't face those problems head on, it seems that they only continue to get worse and fold upon themselves. And then you end up with a state that has uh, a suicide rate that they do. And you just, again, you, you wonder what can be done to, to, to start that conversation and to get rid of the stigma that's associated not only with drug addiction and opioids, but also with suicide and mental health and depression and all the things that come along with that. Yeah, your, your, your point on there. And, uh, you know, I think uh, men in, in general have a much more difficult time expressing their emotions. I think there's a societal bias that we're supposed to be tough and, and we, we don't talk about these things. Certainly don't talk with other men about it. And uh, by keeping it in, it, it probably inhibits uh, getting access to care. And, and access to care early in any mental health disorder disease is incredibly important. The longer these things go on, the stronger those neural connections become in reinforcing uh, the behavior or the, uh, or the disorder. Um, you also you mentioned the rural aspect of this. We think you know, mm -hmm. on, the, on the one side, you know, areas like Washington State or Montana, this big sky country and uh, the rugged outdoors is absolutely stunning and beautiful, right? And another perspective though, it is very difficult to make a living in agriculture these days. Mm -hmm. And human beings, we can deal, our sympathetic nervous systems can deal with a life or death situation that you know, takes place over the course of minutes to an hour or two. We have a much trub more trouble dealing with stressors that are constant and also that are uncontrollable from our perspective. If I have a, a situation where I feel I have control over it and I can, through my hard work or through um, my intelligence, I can get through this, that's much easier to deal with than things that are beyond my control. I'll give you an example. Think about that farmer. Um, tariffs come into play uh, unexpectedly or the price of uh, their product goes up or down. If it goes down, I'm not making as much. I'm also borrowing for big capital infrastructure costs, the farm equipment. I can't control the weather, right? Even with you know, some of the irrigation systems, we can have especially dry or hot um, you know, seasons of the growing season. And I am basically on a bare bone budget where I'm going to make ends meet if everything goes as planned. If they don't go as planned and something extra breaks down and the weather's bad and the prices aren't as good as they, right, all the things I can't control, that's a, those are extrinsic stressors that really make my life challenging. On top of that, even though I might be that rugged individual that likes that lifestyle that I can call my own shots. Um, I also don't have a lot of networking to fall back into to help protect me, you know, when I start to feel lonely. Mm -hmm. So I was rather astounded uh, when I heard that similar statistic. Uh, we took a bunch of med students from PNWU up to Olympia, uh, state capital, and we were there to make them aware of osteopathic medicine and, and healthcare issues. And it was interesting because the legislator was meeting as a group body and voting on certain bills. And we sat in on one of the sessions and it had to do with a uh, farm bill on mental health. And they, they said that statistic of the uh, high rate of suicide in agricultural workers, particularly in rural communities, mm -hmm. it was much higher than even uh, servicemen and women 
coming back, you know, from tours and, and active combat. Uh, that, that was astonishing to me. I didn't know that subpopulation was at such high risk. But then you start to think about those stressors and about that uh, lonely existence at times that can compound it. Depression is higher. These, there's a lot of comorbidities. Uh, pain. Uh, I came from Maine and you know, lobstermen and the other fishing uh, people in the fishing industry. Very hard on your body. So you may be taking an opioid first for pain, but there's a loneliness factor. There's a you know, unpredictability factor. There's a depression factor. All of those things make it very uh, seductive and alluring to try an opioid. Mm -hmm. Or when, if you do take the opioid for whatever reason, medical or otherwise, you really like the effects of it and you take it again and again because it makes you feel, relieves that anxiety. It makes you feel fulfilled. Um, so th this is one of the things we're struggling with. Uh, we're going to try to do our part as a university in training healthcare professionals that are able to understand the complexities and uh, work as team with the, you know, the patient and their family and their community to make us more resilient. Uh, but that's going to take a, a Herculean effort, not just on the part of universities and the healthcare system, but communities and individuals have to be invested in this too. Yeah. It's interesting when you talk about the struggles facing farmers. When you think about a farm, it's so much different than a, a normal job. If you fail at your job and you're fired, that's a depressing enough thing. But if you're a farmer, odds are your job and your office are your home. And in many circumstances, that office was your father's office and your grandfather's office. And it passes generation to generation. And being completely isolated, as many of them are, and dealing with the thought that they're the one who is failing now after these years and generations of success on this farm must be devastating. And when you have that lack of connection with other people that rural areas can often be faced with, you can understand how the options that are driving these uh, lower life expectancy rates can start to come into play pretty quick. And whether that's uh, a suicide option or turning to something that fills that void, um, it's it's really reasonable to see why somebody would would take that instead of dealing with the the pain and the failure that comes along with something that's really out of their control but feels like a, a generational family failure that they're they're really at the the wheel of you know well you just you, listening to you right now I just popped in my head John Mellencamp and some of the songs that he has written and, and performed over the years and, and talking about you know that the legacy mm -hmm. of the family farms and the pride that goes in with that, you know, and, and, and a purpose, right? You were providing food for America. And as technology rapidly evolved, um, it had some advantages, certainly, in terms of productivity. Uh, but it, it was almost replacing the human element in this, right? Uh, these tiny small farms were being replaced by bigger and bigger farms. The machinery was becoming more automated, right? And... Um, what we think would be then, you know, benefits to the individual farmer was threatening their very existence. Right? And so then all of a sudden their purpose, right, for providing for their family and providing for America was being, you know, questioned, at least in their own minds, that this is another existential threat that added to all those other unpredictable things. We used to be able to get through this with just that hard work ethic. Let's roll up our sleeves. We can get through this, uh, you know, this particular dry spot or, um, but it's, it's not so easy anymore. The margins are so razor thin. Um, 
And so there's a shame if I have to give up my farm. It's who, it, what is what defines me. And I don't know if I can live like that further, right? That's the, that's what they're questioning. And then unfortunately, you know, some of them choose to take their own lives because of that. Mm -hmm. Now, looking at that same similar struggle, um, uh, another statistic that jumped out to me um, was that drug overdose rates have surpassed in, uh, in urban communities are now surpassed by those in rural communities. And when you think about um, kind of the stereotypical heroin user, your picture, somebody in a big city in a, you know, in a dark alley or something like that. But now it's, it's not that way anymore. And it's kind of come home to these small town communities like rural places in Montana and all across the country. And it seems that a lot of the credit for that um, goes back to working in those places. You are working in a really high intensity lifestyle and it's the labor is demanding and it causes a lot of injuries and those injuries can lead to opioids being prescribed to you to heal those. And then if you're dealing with those sort of uh, mental struggles of uh, a failing farm or isolation or um, I imagine that the opioid fills some sort of a void that's that's really needed to be filled by something other than an opioid, but it's something to turn to. Coming back to the idea of the, the breast milk thing is fascinating to me and the connection that must be made through an opiate that, uh, you know, sort of like the human connection there. Um, and again, the idea of what jumped out to me when you were talking about the rise of the internet and social media and the different ways that we communicate. Um, correct me if I'm wrong on the timeline for opioids, but it seems in what I was looking at that they really came with the, the opioid medication in the late 90s. And around 2010, people began to realize how big of a problem this was and started to try to wean people off of those pills. And that's when people began to turn to heroin and street drugs that sort of filled that role. And that correlates almost perfectly with the rise of the internet and social media and the different ways of communicating, which I think is pretty inarguable that they lack that human connection that we so desire and that a baby desires by getting breast milk from its mother or somebody desires from having a conversation like you and I are having right now. So could you talk about the, the, the void that's filled um, with an opiate that maybe missing through that that lack of human connection that seems to be uh, becoming worse and worse with the, the rise of technology and less and less interaction, you know, eye to eye with one another. Sure. I, I like you know, how you laid out the timeline. And I think we do need to look at historical context. Um, I'll, I'll take you back first to uh, the late 1800s, early 1900s with industrialization, uh, rapid advances in uh, technology with, you know, cables that were starting to be uh, strung between communities and then you know, across the Atlantic Ocean that was connecting our world uh, you know, almost in an instant with either electricity to, um, and uh, radio waves. Um, and you know that where people fit in, where we're going to re be replaced by the machine. And it was interesting, both osteopathic medicine and occupational therapy uh, came out of um, some of the major challenges of life balances. You know, the osteopaths chose uh, mind, body, spirit. Uh, occupational therapy was looking at the relationship of things that occupy our time and give us senses of fulfillment. And and saw, uh, and then you also had you know, stressors like war, world wars, with rapid technology of war making machines that you know disfigured and and caused horrendous injuries and killed lots and lots of people. So all this was really challenging as 
societies were getting connected across the world and trying to fit in where the individual fit into this world. So not unsurprisingly, we had patent medicines that were widely available uh, that typically contained things like morphine, heroin, uh, opium, um, cocaine was another one mixed with alcohol. And what was interesting was that in the United States, the number one consumer, if you looked at you know different groups, was uh, middle-class, middle-aged uh, Caucasian women. Uh, you know, very interesting you know, that it did, did not fit the persona of that dark alley, destitute person, typically had a, uh, you know, cast as a minority uh, group. It was middle-class Caucasian women. Um, there, there started to be some legislation that started to change how we regulated uh, pharmaceuticals, patent medications, uh, and also trafficking across state lines through taxation and then further regulations that occurred. Now we jump to the 1950s. You know, what was the big invention there? It was the TV. Uh, I remember growing up, you know, you know, some families were starting to put their kids in front of TVs as a surrogate. Um, and there were some major, you know, cultural revolutions occurring within the family structure as, as women were entering the workforce in increasingly uh, high numbers, percentages. So uh, some of the kids were coming home to an empty home and, and didn't have the, the structure, you know, that was traditionally uh, seen. And I'm not saying that that was healthy or unhealthy. It's changing, though. So now um, think about, you know, I was as a young kid, uh, I think Atari was the first video game. Now the video games come on, on board and these video games get more and more sophisticated, barraging us with second by second massive changes, visually, sound, right? Overloading our nervous systems, but occupying our time, right? And now social media. Social media, you know, uh, almost an email too. I will say that email has had mm -hmm. a huge impact on my life from grad school on. Uh, it runs my life, right? And it fractures my life into minute to minute. And I sometimes feel accomplished if I received 100 emails and I responded to 50 of them. I did something, right? Mm. But at the end of the week or at the end of the month or at the end of the year, what the hell did all those emails mean, mm. right? What tangible differences did they make in people's lives? Right? Maybe, maybe not, right? But you start questioning that and all that fragmentation. Social media, compulsively. How many people have looked at my photo that I posted? How many people liked it? Why didn't so-and-so not like it? And I start to question my self-worth. Looking at you know TV and media, how they portray, say, a, a woman, a healthy woman. Right? It tends to be not so healthy, super skinny, you know, uh, photoshopped in, you know, something that is some ideal that's been created but is unrealistic. Mm. But now I have a pressure if I'm a young woman. I'm sure males experience some of that pressure too, to, to have this ideal body, a body shape, right? And then uh, everything is tied to that, how we dress, how we... And again, some of this is not new. Uh, adolescence has always been, I think, a challenge as we become adults and independent thinkers and, and on our own. But adding in all these other things and then rapidly fast-forwarding you know, faster than our nervous systems are able to keep up. Um, so maybe, you know, at some point we do need to say pause and reset. And what can we bring back into our lives that we're craving? Um, you know, the holidays may give us some respite, but there's pressures on the holidays too. I got to get those gifts, mm -hmm. right? And each 
group, you know, that we we talk about has different challenges, but there's a lot of commonalities in these different challenges, even though they on the surface look very distinct. Uh, an upper you know, middle class kid versus a, a kid in an inner city that is in the lower socioeconomic class, uh, someone who's a minority or someone who's a woman versus a man face these different uh, expectations and different biases against them. Uh, and that just adds to this. But then I've got this drug that kind of satisfies, you know, it makes me feel whole again. And it might be tied with a, a, a subset of people who I take the drug with. Their friends, their colleagues, or you know, they're, some way they're my social network now, and it's a very intimate social network. I don't know if you saw the New York Times today. There was a vivid description of uh, a few young people in West Virginia. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was sad to read, it, and it, it was almost beyond understanding. But you, you got to think it through, and you got to kind of ruminate on it for a while, and say that's real human beings facing these challenges and sometimes making poor decisions at least from my perspective. But I also have some empathy for them. And I think we need as a society to have some more empathy for our fellow human beings, even if it's frustrating. I'll give you one last story about a, a colleague uh, who, uh, uh, he's here at PNWU. Uh, he struggled as a younger person with a substance use disorder. And uh, he, he was from Maine and he talked about um, he was desperately trying to shine through. He used the analogy of a lighthouse. During his adolescence, he had a, a father who was a physician. Uh, there was probably some expectations for him to be a physician. Uh, but that was extra pressure on top of all the other aspects of adolescence. And, uh, you know, at some point he got introduced to the opioids. No big deal. He can handle this. But he liked the feeling and he kept taking them. They got harder to come by. He committed some crimes. He got incarcerated. He, he turned himself around, uh, you know, with the help of some people that cared about him in the in the uh, criminal justice system. And he's become a, a strong advocate uh, too for young people in recovery. But it, it's always striking when I heard him speak about desperately trying to shine through. What does that really mean? I think it meant from him, he wanted to be considered special, right? And we all want to be in some way, shape, or form special. Something that we do is recognized as important and meaningful, both internally and to the outside world. That's what we got to program back into our society, along with some resilience and some safe, you know, uh, take away the risk factors that contribute to this. Hmm. Another question that I had for you, and I figured you may be a perfect person to ask, um, when you read the statistics about opioid overdoses and then you hear about things like fentanyl and the synthetic opioids that are so much stronger than uh, morphine and heroin, and then you hear reports, I, correct me if uh, I'm mispronouncing it, a, a drug called Desuvia that the FDA is working on uh, and trying to approve that's 500 times stronger than morphine. And I think it's a public perspective, and it's certainly my perspective, that you wonder what is the use of something that's 500 times stronger than morphine, and why would the FDA approve something like that? And so what are the uses of of things like that, and why are they being brought to a, a market that's supposed to be regulated but ends up many times in people's hands when it's not regulated and ends in all these deaths? Yeah. So, you know, 
uh, the drug you're referring to is called sufentanyl. That's the generic name. It's, mm -hmm. it's a fentanyl analog. So fentanyl and sufentanyl are approved opioids already. This was just a different form of it. And you know, I, I think I think you're right to um, critique or question why do we need another form of a drug that's already available? Mm -hmm. And you know, you could look at the marketing team and how they're you know projecting this. Uh, the FDA, you know, has a tough job, you know trying to weigh the, the, the safety factor. Uh, and it maybe it is surprising that uh, this particular drug got approved at this time. Um, if they're carefully regulated and um, prescribed and monitored, uh, they can be used effectively for certain conditions. Uh, the fentanyls traditionally have been useful in the perioperative uh, uh, surgery arena. Um, they they are some of them are very short acting so that you can titrate up and down blood levels to meet the needs of the anesthesiologist and the surgeon. Right? So that's one of their distinct advantages over morphine, which is slower to to act and is harder to titrate. Um, for chronic pain, the the fentanyl uh, drug can be uh, given as a patch, a, a dermal patch, and it, it's got a lot of uh, lipophilicity. It's uh, fat soluble, so it's able to in enough quantity. Uh, get across the dermal layer, the skin, and get into the blood, and uh, can produce good, consistent blood levels for 24 hours or longer, uh, which can be desirable for a pain patient who wants to not have to worry about taking pills every, you know, four hours. Um, and it's a high efficacy. So not only is it high potency, but it's high efficacy. So it can take care of some of the more severe uh, types of pain. But you know, the, I think the media. And the public like to sensationalize things. So, you know, we keep hearing and it's, we're going to find something that's 10,000 more potent than morphine too. And, and certainly those do present unique challenges because that lipophilicity gets it into the brain that much quicker. So, you know, almost instantly you're unconscious and you're stopped breathing, right? And it gets harder to reverse with Narcan if you even have it available, right? So th those are distinct disadvantages when illicit fentanyl analogs or normally prescribed fentanyl type drugs are now uh, diverted to people who are, are not being monitored medically, right? And they're are using them illicitly or abusing them. So it is, it's definitely, it's going to be an ongoing challenge. Uh, chemists can make, you know, hundreds of these analogs. Uh, there's another drug called atorphine. It's known as an elephant tranquilizer. It's even more potent than sufentanyl. Um, so these things exist and new ones will come by. Again, our strategy should be, you know, carefully regulate them, uh, use them appropriately and manage the patients that are being prescribed them effectively. And there's strategies definitely that can be done and there's guidelines that are published. We just need to follow them. For the illicit use, uh, we, you know, some of this is law enforcement and, and uh, making sure that they don't come into our country. They aren't uh, created in our country and distributed, but that's only one little part of the, the problem. Mm -hmm. Let's look at the demand, try to reduce the demand for these drugs. And let's look at getting people help earlier. Let's eliminate some of the risk factors or mitigate them as much as possible. And then we can have, you know, a dent education, public education, family members, what to look for, you know, warning signs, how to get people to help, get to help, how to coordinate care. So there's no magic bullet for you know substance use disorders or chronic pain or depression. 
it's going to be a lot of hard work on the part of the individual and the healthcare team and society. Mm -hmm. That comes back to that that societal piece. So again, touching on the the things that are filled by an opioid um, that aren't filled in society these days that may be turning so many people to them. Um, it also touches back on that idea of suicide and why people are feeling so hopeless. And um, there was another study that I read leading into this where I don't remember the exact percentage, but there was a massive percentage of people who voted that they expect life for the next generation to be worse than it is for the current generation, which is unheard of when they've been doing this study. Most people think that in the future things will get better. And the idea that people think that things are only going to get worse is really hard to overcome. And it's hard to tell people that the substance that makes you feel, as you're saying, sort of that those qualities that are missing in your life um, isn't good for you and that you shouldn't take it when it's an option for them and they can take it and get those pieces that they're missing is, is really hard. So looking forward, how do you think as a society, we turn these numbers around and we stop with this declining life expectancy rate and these high numbers of suicide and drug overdoses, especially with the synthetic opioids becoming more and more popular and instead get people back to some of those those roots that you talked about where it's the natural human connection and the cravings that are are not being filled. Yeah. So, you know, that, that's a, um, a very complex question with a very, very diverse set of answers <laughs> of uh, and, and, and some of them are opinions and some probably are, are you know, would be based on uh, recommendations, consensus opinions and, uh, you know, science. And, and I think so mm -hmm. the first thing we have to do is confront that we've got multiple problems that are interrelated. Um, and and we, we've got to just bluntly say, uh, this is going to take a team approach. This is not anything that a, a single community can do or a state can do or, or even the, the whole nation. Um, multi-front approach. Um, and it's going to cost us some money. We're going to have to invest in, in some of this. Uh, we can reform things. And I, I don't think anybody would argue with efficiency. If we can find efficient ways of accomplishing a goal, no one on any political spectrum, uh, on the political spectrum, is going to argue with that, that approach. Um, it, where it gets you know, um, challenging is when you have a divergence of opinions. And I think you know one of the things that you know I think has come out of this opiate crisis, and through research and through education, is that substance use disorders are diseases. There's a biological, genetic basis to it, and there's also a strong environmental component. Um, and by legitimizing that, we can get away from saying that this person just has you know low moral fortitude or um, you know, just get over it or just, you know, solve this in your, on your own. Mm -hmm. It's clearly not that simple. Yeah. Which helps with the stigma as well. Yep. If you have, whether it's an opioid addiction or some sort of substance abuse problem, or even if you're suffering from major depression where you're considering suicide, yep. the fact that our society stigmatizes those things still where if you have a drug addiction, you're looked at as some sort of a social outcast with a, a lack of moral compass. And that's, it's really hard to encourage somebody to go and look for help and admit that they have a problem when they're dealing with that sort of a, a watchful eye on them. So let's put that aside because science has clearly uh, demonstrated that all of these are diseases, chronic pain, the same thing. Um, I use the the uh, story of a bee sting. You know, many, many people have been stung by bees. And it's amazing that, that what we can learn or what we remember from that bee sting, right, that might have happened decades ago. We can tell you where we were, where it exactly stung us, how we reacted, who we you know, ran to. Uh, many 
aspects of that story that was only a fraction of her life. You know, it was seconds to minutes. So you'll never forget that bee sting, right? And you'll probably be afraid of bees in some way, um, you know, going forward once that animal, you know, harmed you. So it shows you how strong our nervous systems are in remembering things that harm or hurt us, uh, make us feel bad. And the flip side, things that make us feel good, right? Including maybe that first taste of heroin, right? And you remember that and you want to feel like that all the time. And then it's not that simple, right? It's you get tolerance, you get dependence, you get other uh, uh, effects of the of the continuous drug use uh, that, that make it that it, it's not a healthy behavior. But you still, even if you've been clean for years, you'll remember. And some of that, it's a form of learning memory that cannot be erased. We can teach you some new strategies to deal with the stressors that might put you at a risky spot and a slip up or a relapse. We can teach you strategies to get help when you're starting to feel or rekindle that, that uh, you know, uh, substance use disorder. So th those are practical um, things that we can more broadly implement. Mm. But we are going to have to figure out how to reform our healthcare system in, in some way. We're spending more on it than any other nation, and we're getting some of the worst you know, uh, outcomes. And this, this is simply not just mental health. This is things like obesity and uh, diabetes and the consequences of that as well. So we, we've got to confront that as well. Um, certainly the individual has to take some accountability and responsibility and engagement in getting better. Um, but if we can get the stigma to come down, get them access to care earlier, invest in prevention, which most people don't seem to want to invest in prevention, but that's probably the best strategy in that for a very relatively low cost, we can save ourselves millions and millions of dollars. There's you know things we're doing on the education side, you know, and, and training healthcare professionals to work as an interprofessional team and how to better engage the patient, have a difficult conversation. Um, there are outreach activities that we can do with new parents and parents with adolescents. We can, and we are doing things in the school systems uh, that are engaging young adults who are making independent decisions. Let's treat them as young adults. Mm -hmm. It's it's not simply you know uh, it's a bad strategy to say no, <laughs> this is bad for you. Don't do it. Right, mm -hmm. uh, that clearly does not work for an adolescent. But if we can hear from them what's on their minds respect that they might think differently than someone in their 40s or 60s, right? Uh, we, we definitely know the risk factors, many of them, and we can uh, try to mitigate those. A kid that doesn't have a parent to come home to in the afternoon, um, can we have an after-school program? Can we engage some parents who may not be best at parenting to uh, learn? I mean, it's definitely a, a learned set of behaviors to become a better parent providing safe environments for people, both in the schools, at, at home, elsewhere. Um, I think communities are starting to realize that they need to invest back in things like a downtown, something that brings people together to do something together, to make eye contact again, to have a conversation. Yeah, there's great drive-through stands where you can get your coffee on the go, but how about taking that at 15, 20 minutes uh, maybe meeting a stranger, mm -hmm. right? And seeing their perspective or through their eyes. Uh, I know for me, I've, I've completely changed some of the approaches in my life to start uh, talking to people with the diseases and conditions that I try to cure in rats and mice uh, 
presumably to translate to humans. Mm. But it's much better to have a conversation with someone who's confronted with this, learn from them, and uh, maybe that helps inform our science too. Yeah. One interesting strategy, um, we had a speaker recently from the Union Gospel Mission, um, their executive director, Mike Johnson, and he has a documentary um, where he was in Seattle at the Union Gospel Mission, and he started a climbing team, um, and they would work on summiting Mount Rainier together, and he would take people from the UGM who had these many times substance abuse problems, and it seemed that by giving them some sort of a greater purpose and a goal, and goal. they were their their addictions sort of slipped away for a while and they were able to focus on this this purpose that they had in life i bet you some of them described it as hey i felt human again i felt like a person yeah and, and part of that was companionship too right a team that set out for a, a goal that was audacious maybe god I, I have just a hard enough time getting up you know a rattlesnake ridge or you know, some <laughs> small hill around here uh versus you know a fourteen thousand foot uh technical climb but hey, I don't have to do it alone. Yeah, I can do it with a group of people, and we're going to build up to it, right? Yeah, and that's sort of a lesson for a lot of things in life that you could then translate, even in in recovery. Looking at it instead of uh, I'm alone here, and everybody thinks that I have a problem, and I have to figure out my problem. Saying that I have a goal of one day getting to this point, and I'm working with others to get there, I imagine is a really helpful strategy that again, relieves them of that stigma and that shame that they feel, which you would imagine would drive them further into whatever sort of problems they were facing. Support groups are an excellent um, low-cost solution to help. I mean, again, it's not the be-all and end-all, but uh, support groups are great. Uh, One of the things that we've, uh, I think, done that's fairly unique is uh, bring chronic pain support groups in contact with young people in recovery with substance use disorders, two groups that, you know, again, traditionally have viewed themselves as the the um, enemy, right? It's your fault that my uh, son or daughter overdosed, or it's your fault that I can't get my pain medications. But if you take that step back and you start to think about what these individuals have in common, uh, many of them also have comorbidities of depression, anxiety, loss of sleep, you know, not well, you know, uh, sleeplessness basically, sleep disruptions, mm-hmm. circadian rhythm disruptions. Um, all, all they both face stigmas and isolation, right? So let's talk about that and let's see how we can fix that. And now, you know, the hundred members of the chronic pain support group can work with the hundred members of the young people in recovery. Now they got two hundred people to go and meet with legislators at the state capitol, and then some of them will go down, you know, to D.C. and talk to legislators about the challenges. And all, all of a sudden, we got some inner city uh, people and some rural uh, people and some minorities and some this, that, and the other thing. And now we realize that we all have this, you know, um, desire to be human, but we also have some challenges that are, that run across all human beings. Let's work together to you know, try to make life better for all of us. Mm. A closing note and dealing with that stigma and getting people to understand better about um, the process of addiction. What is it that people misunderstand about people who are addicted to opiates? And what is it, uh, maybe it's the function that the drug fulfills for them. It's it's the, the void that they're filling. What are some of the things that society as a whole seems to, to misrepresent about those communities? I think you started on that right at the beginning of this podcast uh, that, um, you know, if, if we can have a biological basis for this, 
Right? It takes the stigma out of it. And certainly consciousness and willpower, however we define it, has a role in here, right? But no one, I think, sets out to give birth to a, a new kid that's going to grow up to be an addict. And no kid, as they start to enter adolescence, you know, that sets that as a goal. Uh, we are innately curious, right? And we, we try a lot of different things. Some of us are more, uh, you know, likely to engage in risky activities, whether it's intense running, you know, uh, running to the extreme or um, surfing where sharks might be or climbing Mount Rainier, right? And, and so, you know, youth are going to try these different substances. We hope that one, they have a lot of resilience factors, healthy other things in their lives that satisfy them, including their urge to try, you know, potentially dangerous situations, the thrill, right? But, um, you know, it's, it's, I would hope that people understand how complex these diseases and disorders are. Our brains are just, you know, not infinitely, but near infinitely complex. And what makes us an individual uh, is you know, impossible to say, but we are individuals. Um, and so we each face our own challenges. Um, I was just reading on Ezra Pound, uh, there's an article on my desk right now about being an individual and, and charting your own basically path in life. So we want that uniqueness, but we also want to conform. And that's an inherent uh, conflict that we face. And uh, with help and with conversation that's open without prejudging. And that's what I'm learning as I talk to more and more people, uh, people that I would never have when I was 15 or 20 come in contact with, or maybe I was afraid of. Um, maybe that's you know the age now I'm, I'm getting wisdom, but why can't we inject that when you're five or 10 years old? There's strategies that we can make people more comfortable with people who are different than us earlier in their lives so that um, when we are confronted with a challenge, we have a support network, and we also maybe uh, took away some of those uh, things that drive us apart. Uh, that's gonna help us, uh, as well as science and medicine and healthcare. Uh, uh, I'm optimistic, and uh, I think everybody should be optimistic. We, we, we shouldn't despair. Uh, we, we, what makes us um, vulnerable also can give us resilience and it can also problem solve through some of the most daunting challenges that we've faced in the past successfully. Thanks again for tuning into the scientific method to be the first to hear our upcoming episodes, including our conversations with the nation's leading healthcare experts on topics such as opioids in America, healthcare reform, corporate funded research, and more subscribe now.